Hi listeners, this is our final regular episode of the season. But we wanted to let you know that we do have a few bonus follow-up episodes in the works. These won't be released on our regular weekly schedule, but they'll be released periodically in the coming weeks and months. Make sure you stay subscribed to our show and your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss these. We're also hoping to produce a second season of Chasing Enlightenment, which will cover the story of a new group. So make sure you stay subscribed and follow us on social media so that you don't miss news about season two. Thanks so much again for sticking with us through this season. Don't forget to rate and review our show and visit chasingenlightenment.net slash support to find more ways to support us. What you are about to hear may include disturbing descriptions of sexual or physical abuse or may contain coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. My name's Daniel, and I'm researching the Beings of Light. Your name came up in my research, so I was hoping to ask you some questions about the group. Beings of Light. What is that? It's a spiritual group that operated in the Toronto Junction and owned a vegetarian restaurant and some other businesses. Oh, I worked at the vegetarian restaurant. Were you involved with that group? No. I was just wondering what you what you might be able to tell me about the group that owned the restaurant that you worked for. Don't know it is not it must have been before my time or after my time or something. So like the the beings of light or the students of light that doesn't sound familiar to you? Not really. I I mean I'm not sure what this, what it is doing with a restaurant. I don't know. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I was just, I was hoping you might know something about, about the group since you worked for the restaurant, but if not, I won't, I won't bother you anymore. Okay, so who did you say you are? During our research for this podcast, we tried many times to reach out to people who we believe are current members of the Students of Light. After countless emails, Facebook messages, and phone calls, we received very few responses, with many saying just enough to tell us that they weren't interested in talking. Um... I really don't want to speak about things. It's so long ago things have happened, and I don't really want to talk to people about it. So I'm sorry, but I, I can't help you. I would, I suggest you. I would suggest about whoever's talking, you talk to them and find more. I don't know. They seem to know. People seem to want to talk about it, but I don't. So anyway, that's all. I'm not. I'm not going to say anything or do anything. So I have nothing more to say. I'm sorry. Sorry you wasted your call. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. At first, we wondered whether the group was still active. But we now have strong reason to believe that they are. For one thing, we've heard from a few former members that their loved ones are still involved. And searches of public records show that corporations associated with the group remain active in the province of Ontario, including corporations under which the group owns property in the Junction neighbourhood. The group has undergone some name changes since their founding as the Students of Light in the 1970s. Between the 80s and 2000s, we've heard them referred to as both the Beings of Light and the Bearers of Light. As far as we can tell, their most recent name change occurred in the 2000s, with the group now going by the Heart School of the Greater Reality. We've continued to refer to them under their original name, the Students of Light, for the sake of consistency and because it's a bit less of a mouthful. In this final regular episode of our show, we bring you to the present day. We attempt to piece together what we can about the group's recent history and current status. And you'll hear some final thoughts from former members as they look back on their time in the group and how it continues to affect their lives. 
This is Chasing Enlightenment, Episode 6, The Present. Students of Light's home base, the Junction neighborhood, is practically its own character in their story. The group first bought various properties there in the 70s and 80s. At the time, the Junction was largely run down and economically stagnant, as a prohibition on alcohol sales prevented new businesses from opening. Given the state of the neighborhood at the time, real estate would have been quite cheap. But between then and now, the value of the group's properties has likely skyrocketed. Their real estate investments must now be worth millions. The main businesses the group ran in the junction were the Four Seasons Health Food Store, the aptly named The Vegetarian Restaurant, and Soy City Foods, the soy foods production plant. Given the state of the junction when these businesses opened, it's not a stretch to think that the group did some good by injecting the neighborhood with commercial activity. You last heard non-group member Genevieve Amaral in episode 5, recalling the children she knew from the group during her childhood in the junction. Here she is again, recounting her memories of the group's businesses. One thing I will say is that it it seemed middle, everything seemed quite middle class or, or better. So it didn't seem, everyone seemed, there seemed to be, there was a bit of money. They weren't rich, but the shops weren't, weren't shabby at all is my memory of it. Yeah. If anything, a little bit, I wouldn't say upscale, but like for the neighborhood in particular, they were, the the shops were a little bit, um, and restaurants and stuff were like on the upper end of sort of the class scale. Uh, of the other things around. So like, for example, like on Dundas, when I was growing up at this time, there were like junk shops on Dundas with like just piled crap, like old broken dish, you know, uh, washing machines and stuff, you know, um, that was the, the nature of a lot of the businesses in that, in that, on that strip. And so their, their shops and things, I remember seeming nicer than some of the other stuff around. The group's main businesses all closed down by the 2000s. By then, John Hainis' health was in decline, and many longtime members were getting older and were no longer enthusiastic about operating these businesses. The Junction was also beginning a rapid evolution. After Prohibition was overturned in the year 2000, the Junction quickly became a busy, bustling neighborhood full of trendy bars, restaurants, and shops. Without the relative privacy they enjoyed prior to this, it makes sense that the group would scale back their more public enterprises. We mentioned in episode one that the Students of Light opened some of Toronto's very first vegetarian food businesses, long before vegetarian lifestyles were as trendy as they are today. And there is one sense in which the spirit of the group's vegetarian and health food enterprises lives on. Soul Cuisine, that's soul as in Spanish for sun, is a Toronto-area company that manufactures frozen vegetarian food products, distributing them throughout Canada and internationally. Here's Dror Balshine, the company's president. And today we're um, the third largest plant-based food company in Canada. And we are the number one seller of veggie burgers in Canada. The roots of Soul Cuisine trace back in part to the Students of Light's Soy City Foods. In 2002, Soy City's managers approached Drawer, who was running a vegetarian food distribution company. Soy City said they were looking to sell their company, and Drawer saw an opportunity to branch out beyond distribution into manufacturing. 
So at the time, we were mostly contract manufacturing. We were con- we didn't have our own facility, so we were contract manufacturing uh, everything. And so when the folks that, at Soy City were were looking to uh, make a change. One of the uh, opportunities was to get into manufacturing, although they didn't have a very um, good or strong manufacturing equipment. They, you know, they had a lot of experience in it. Soy City had fairly modest facilities and distribution networks, but Drawer saw an opportunity to take over what they had and expand it. And you know, they had a good uh, but limited, you know, distribution and good name in the marketplace. Drawer didn't know much about the group behind Soy City Foods or its spiritual elements, since he really just knew them on a professional level. His impressions of why they wanted to sell the business is consistent with our earlier remarks that, by the 2000s, the Students of Light were generally slowing down their commercial activities. The the honest truth is I think they were just sort of tired, and they didn't have anybody that was willing to put more money in to kind of direct it. And manufacturing takes capital and, you know, someone, you know, take, someone's got to take loans and things like that. And it was, I think they, they just didn't have the, the human energy or the financial wherewithal to, to grow it. Drawer acquired Soy City's manufacturing equipment and distribution networks, then closed up its physical location in the junction and moved all manufacturing to the Toronto suburb Mississauga. Since 2002, the company and its products have vastly grown and evolved. To be clear, Soul Cuisine bears no direct affiliation with the Students of Light. Rather, it simply grew in part out of one of the group's more successful business ventures, which was sold by the group and taken over by Drawer. Still, Drawer thinks that part of the spirit of what the group was originally trying to do with Soy City and their innovative vegetarian businesses lives on in Soul Cuisine. I think that we maintain, and I think they what they brought to the table was the desire to make products as natural and as healthy as possible for our, we call them soulmates today, our, our customers. And I think that we're still trying to create that connection with, our, with people that buy our products. Beyond its setting in the junction, the most important element of the Students of Light's history are the people who formed and sustained the group its leader, John Hainis, and the hundreds of followers he both amassed and lost over multiple decades. You heard in episode 4 that John Hainis died in 2012, his physical body deteriorating, and, so we've heard, his mind deteriorating too. You'll recall that John married a woman named Joanne in the 1980s, after which Joanne closely assisted John with group leadership. Members of John's core group of followers apparently took close care of him in his final days, and it's safe to guess that Joanne would have been tending to him especially closely. By all accounts, the two had a deep bond and took care of one another throughout their marriage. Former members have told us that after John's death in 2012, Joanne largely took over the group. But her leadership would have been short-lived since she passed away herself within a few years, around 2014 or 15. Since then, we've heard that the remaining members of John's core group share leadership. But they apparently claim that John's spirit continues to guide them from beyond the grave, with some core group members channeling John through their own bodies. Here's what the former group member we've referred to as Andrew, whose words you've heard in previous episodes, has heard secondhand about this. I know they're referring to John Hainis as H2O now, because apparently he's been reincarnated and his spirit is controlling the group and he's gone up to a higher form than just the physical now. They've elevated John to this great spirit in the sky now, a benevolent spirit in the sky. He's H2O. So they don't drink the Kool-Aid, they drink the H2O. It's like, I don't know, Hainis 2.0 or something. Rather than being on Earth, He's with us now as a benevolent spirit guiding us. 
Now that John and Joanne have passed, longtime group members would be getting older, with many in at least their 60s or 70s. We don't know exactly how many people are still involved, but Andrew guesses that the remaining members are particularly dedicated. You know what it is? You're down to like the real hardcore believers, or those who are really at this point. They want to stay in because they want to maintain that sense of being better than society as a whole. It's like, we're the chosen, we're God's chosen people. So it becomes a self-congratulatory circle. We're God's chosen people, aren't we all just great? That's sort of my impression of what's going on right now. Cynthia Watson, a former member you've heard from in multiple episodes, moved back to the junction sometime after she left the group in the 1980s. She told us that when she now walks around the neighborhood, she runs into people she knew during her time in the group, who she assumes are still members. She says they typically refuse to acknowledge her, going out of their way to avoid her. Like, I live here in the junction again. Um, I, just, just because I found an apartment here. And they're so weird towards me. Only one current member will speak with Cynthia at all, though not about anything directly related to the group. The one girl that I talked to, um, she doesn't tell me anything. And she's all full of the, full of the light, right? Still, Cynthia observes from afar many people who were once her friends. Her impression is that the group's numbers have dwindled. Like, I live here. I also, I drive around all the time. Like, I'm out and about all the time. I see, like, the same five people. I don't, it's not like you see a lot of them. Having left the group decades ago herself, she now wonders how others could have stayed for so long. And I see these people now walking around the neighborhood. I, I, there was this one woman today walking by. She was a really close friend of mine. And I could just, I could just, just sense it, the way she held her shoulders, that she was so sad and unfulfilled. And yet she's got children and a dog and a family. And, but I, I can't even imagine that these people stayed here with that thing their whole lives. In speaking with former members who know a bit about what the group is like now, one impression we get is that in comparison with group life at its most intense in the 80s and 90s, things may now have mellowed out a bit. John used to instruct members to cut off most contact with the world outside the group, and he regulated romantic relationships within the group. But it seems rules like this have softened in recent years to some extent. At the same time, one former member who left fairly recently, but who asked to remain anonymous, told us that life in the group has slowly gotten more strict again after John's death. For some time in the 2000s, the group was more open to associating with outsiders. But they've apparently shifted back to being more secretive. We've also heard that their spiritual focus has shifted to some extent. The group has always blended elements of various religious traditions, of Christianity, of Eastern religions, and of New Age practices. But this former member told us that in recent years, the group has become much more Christian and fixated on the Bible. You'll recall that John preached that his followers had been Jesus' disciples in their past lives. Apparently, the group now takes this very seriously. As the chosen few that were especially close to Jesus, they see it as their mission to meditate and pray in order to prevent global catastrophes like famine and climate change. Our own attempts to contact current group members do suggest that they remain staunchly secretive. One particular instance of this stands out. 
Here are some clips from an attempt to contact someone we believe is currently a member. Hello. Hi, my name's Daniel, um, and I wanted to speak to you because I'm researching the beings of light, and I was hoping you could answer some questions for me about the group. Okay. I've been speaking to some people who used to be involved with the group, but most of them were from some time ago um, and described more the history of the group. So I'm looking to talk to someone who can speak a bit more about kind of the current status of the group. Um, I don't really have anything to say. It's so long ago, you know? Like, one thing I'm interested in is that there have been some really negative allegations about the group out there in public, and I'm hoping to find someone who can speak more positively about the group and maybe what the group thinks about these allegations. Have no clue. Have no clue who's speaking. Not interested, actually. Um, it's up to people, whatever they want to say. So long ago now, things have happened. Sorry, but I can't help you. Could I ask you if you're still involved with the group? Um, no, I'm not. Okay, so is it is it not a group that that's active anymore, or could you tell me a bit about that? I have no clue. I I have no clue. I'm sorry, but I have no clue. Upon listening to our recording of this call afterwards, we noticed something interesting. Early on, as I introduced myself, it sounded like the person on the other end quickly whispered something. I've been speaking to some people who used to be involved with the group, but most of them were from some time ago um, and described more the history of the group. Intrigued, we isolated this brief bit of audio. Protection. As best as we can make out, the whispered word here is protection. Protection. We know that the students of light often prayed for the protection of the pure white light of the Christ, asking it to surround and protect them against dark forces. Our best guess is that this was an invocation meant to protect the group from our attempts to learn about them. Now, the group supposedly prides themselves on being a powerful force for good in the world, one founded by a great spiritual master and tasked with bringing humanity into a new age of enlightenment. If they are a legitimate spiritual organization, and if all the positive things they claim are true, it's not totally clear why members are so hesitant to tell their side of the story. If any current group members have been listening to this podcast, we hope that our many attempts to get in touch show that we're interested in airing your perspective. We'd appreciate hearing your side of any of the stories we've told, or just hearing more from you about what the group is up to now. Though this is our last regular episode, we'd love to do a follow-up devoted to sharing your perspective. You can find our contact information at chasingenlightenment.net. The backbone of this podcast has been the testimony of former students of light. Some have now largely sworn off the types of spiritual practices the group engages in, instead finding fulfillment in other ways but other former members continue to practice the kinds of methods they learned with the group. Robert Pollock, whose books we've referenced throughout the podcast, is still a professional energy healer and aura balancer. And Don Colmar, John's former right-hand man, has founded his own spiritual school. Now, among former members who still hold spiritual beliefs similar to the groups, there are a few who asked us not to make their full identities public due to a certain concern. To this day, some former members are hesitant to speak publicly because they fear retaliation. Specifically, retaliation of a spiritual kind. 
They believe the group has the power to bombard them with negative energies or bad vibes, and that speaking publicly would make them targets. One of these former members is Joseph C., who spoke about John's own spiritual powers in episode 3. His concerns were the reason that we agreed not to use his full name on the podcast. I, I, uh, these people uh, are highly skilled and have a very well-developed intuition. Okay, um, They have the ability to, to perceive to receive and to send impressions. If I were to create a picture of the energy behind this group, uh, spiritual force, if you will, I'd have to paint a picture of liquid fire, real fire, but a friendly fire, okay? A friendly fire, a fire that heals, a fire that loves. But you know, fire can always, can also have an adverse side to it, okay? Yeah, that friendly fire can be used to protect oneself as well. Spiritual energies can be very strong, okay? And it's very, very real, Dan. It's very real. Never think for one minute, uh, oh, it's getting a little spooked out about this, spooked out about that. It's very real, okay? There's nothing, there's nothing made up about it. Of course, to anyone who no longer believes in the group's brand of spiritual teachings, this sentiment doesn't hold them back from speaking publicly. We asked Cynthia for her thoughts about another former member who told us she was worried about retaliation. Cynthia had strong words about this. Oh, that's crap. Oh, I know. She was saying to you, she doesn't want their bad energy, right? Oh, that's such shit. No, no. I don't believe that at all, you know. Whatever one's thoughts about all this, it's clear that some former members still live in fear of a group they've left, some of them decades ago. Most of the former members we interviewed summed up the takeaways and life lessons that they've gleaned from their experiences. Many spoke in some way about the importance of critically reflecting on your own beliefs and actions, rather than mindlessly following some authority. Cynthia, for example, stressed the importance of thinking through one's life plans in advance, rather than squandering away valuable years of one's life. <laughs> you just think things through. Like, I made a huge mistake. I have so many regrets of of getting involved in that group. Like, there's nothing positive about it. I should have stayed for like a week and left, had an aura balance, and gone merrily along my way. I had a bright future back then, you know? And then, you know, you, you waste your 20s. It's not a good thing. It was just, I honestly, just foolishness. Cynthia first joined the Students of Light at a time when she felt directionless. She figured she might as well join the group since it gave her companions a place to live and a job. I got a job in a vegetarian restaurant as a waitress, and I got an apartment in the neighborhood. So it sort of solved all my life issues. I'd like recently broken up with a boyfriend. I was heartbroken, and suddenly I was kind of all taken care of there. 
She now feels she was far too content to submit to the authority of the group and John Heinous, and that she should have been more critical of her choices. We heard similar sentiments from Treva Olson. You heard her story in episode 2, the story of how she was forcibly kidnapped and deprogrammed by her family in 1980. One of the main reasons she chose to speak with us for this podcast is that she thinks it's important to encourage people to critically evaluate the groups and authority figures they choose to associate with. Well, I think the word, you know, to let people know, you got to do your own thinking. (laughs) Everything begins with you. It's inside to do the inner seeking, the inner cultivating. Nobody else has got any more truth than you do inside. When people hear about groups like the Students of Light, one of the main questions that comes to mind is, are they a cult? Some former members claim that they are. But this is a difficult question to answer in part because the very word cult is controversial and hard to define. On one hand, there's a more academic, sociological sense of the term, the way it was originally defined by scholars of new religious movements. Here's sociologist Lauren Dawson speaking to that definition. I, I think in a way you got to use the language that people want to use, but you got to recognize that when you're saying cult, technically all you're saying is a small, relatively used, loosely organized new group uh, that is usually focused on, to take it really to its origin, some kind of cult act, cultivation, like a cult activity, ritual activity, some kind of key action. Because almost none of these groups are about just sort of a set of ideas in a book. If it's just a set of ideas in a book, it doesn't become a cult. It becomes a cult when some kind of activity, some kind of collective shared technique activity is done with the association that by engaging in this meditation or this you know, visualization exercise or whatever it may be, that is the way to gain access to the inner knowledge, the secret knowledge, the esoteric knowledge, right? After everything we've shared on the podcast, the Students of Light clearly do fit this definition. At the same time, the way the word cult gets used in a more popular, everyday sense is not quite the same as this more scholarly definition. Cults entered popular consciousness in the 70s and 80s, as parents became panicked that young people were abandoning mainstream society to join non-traditional religious groups. The term then took on much more negative connotations. Uh, but it became a term that was that was pejorative and, and implied some kind of you know negative taking over of someone's will and engaging in various kinds of objectionable activities. Professor Dawson says that in this popular sense of the word, there are three specific characteristics typically associated with cults. First, loss of control over your own you know life and activities. Extreme version of it being some notion that you were brainwashed. Second some kind of sexual exploitation or sexual manipulation, right, or abuse in various ways. And? The third one is violence. Then, of course, it's assumed that potentially you could find yourself in some kind of murder-suicide situation as a result of these new religious movements. On this podcast, you've heard allegations related to the first two of these points. You've heard former members say that John Heinous exerted extreme control and manipulation, and you've heard accusations of sexual abuse against some of the group's leadership. But you've also heard that not every former member agrees with these allegations. Moreover, the third characteristic popularly associated with cults, that they're prone to violence and lead to mass murder-suicides, doesn't fit the students of light so well. 
at least not as far as we know. So while the Students of Light may fit the more academic definition of cult that you heard earlier, they only partially fit the criteria stereotypically associated with cults in popular culture. In the end, perhaps the best we can do is simply try to document what we do know about the group, setting aside whether they fit some particular label like cult. So we'll wrap up this episode with some of the main things we've learned. We'll start with some positives. As we said earlier this episode, there are ways in which the group has been a productive part of its community in the junction. They invested in a deteriorating neighborhood and opened many businesses there. Some of these businesses were quite innovative in that they included one of the first vegetarian restaurants in Toronto and a successful soy foods production facility. It also seems that the group has helped at least some members find a sense of satisfaction in their lives. In episode 2, we covered how many members of the group first joined while seeking a deeper spiritual purpose and camaraderie with like-minded individuals. Given the group's longevity, sustained by its longtime members, it's difficult not to conclude that many believe they've found what they were looking for. And you'll recall from episode 2 that even Treva Olson, who now strongly denounces the group, once remarked in an interview with CBC Newsworld that it's difficult not to miss the sense of community it provided. I guess being a part of a cult was being a part of a very, very close family. And we all shared the same ideals. We um, all worked together and we traveled in our recruiting together. It was, it was like leaving a large family when I left. And when I left the cult, I really missed the family for quite a while. Cynthia Watson, also an outspoken critic of the group, brought up similar themes while reflecting on the fact that current members are still keeping the group going in the junction. But, you know, I guess they must have found something valuable to make them want to stay here, right? Some community, I guess that can be valuable. The former second-generation group member, who we called Emma in our previous episode, also told us about the value the group's community provided, especially at a time when her parents, both group members, passed away. Both my parents died within 18 months of each other. Um, So I relied on the group for support, um, emotional support, as well as, you know, what any other group would do. I guess a church group would do when somebody passes away. There was always food dropped at our feet and always, we were always taken care of. In general, when evaluating groups like the Students of Light, it's important not to overlook the ways that they bring their members a sense of fulfillment. Here's Lauren Dawson again. Other people really shine and find tremendous satisfaction in life by, in a sense, sacrificing themselves to a group and to a cause and getting all that. And you're never aware as an outsider all those little little ways every day that they're getting positive feedback and help in feeling good about their lives and feeling a life has meaning and purpose. I've always had this sense that we shouldn't be baffled by religion in general, especially new religions, because of this tremendous need for purpose people have. Yet, despite some positives the group might bring to their community and to members' lives, you've also heard many darker claims about the group on this podcast. For one thing, John Hainis has been accused by a number of former followers of being an abusive person. You've heard allegations that, claiming to be the reincarnation of Jesus, John asserted himself as the sole authority in his followers' lives and demanded huge amounts of their time and money, claiming that without his protection, they'd be susceptible to harm from dark forces. You've also heard allegations that John used his spiritual authority to sexually abuse a woman in the group, 
and that he attempted to abuse a teenage girl when she confided in him about alleged abuse that she was experiencing from his right-hand follower. And you've heard that John ordered children taken away from their parents and forbid his followers from using conventional medicine to the point that at least one of them died from an untreated illness. Now, if true, none of these allegations imply that all group members are bad people. Historically, at its height, the group had hundreds of members. And if these alleged abuses did occur, many may not even have known about them, given that so few group members had much direct access to John and the inner workings of his leadership. At the same time, many of these alleged harms have been made public to some extent. Several people who left the group have made it known that they did so because they felt it was harmful. All the way back in 1980, Treva Olson was quite public about this through interviews with mainstream media outlets. In 2015, Robert Pollack published many details about the darker side of the group in his book 25 Years with Jesus. Despite generally singing the praises of John and the Students of Light, Pollack also details some more damning elements, such as allegations that John committed sexual abuse. And even more recently, further darker allegations about the group have been made public when Don Colmar was arrested based on allegations of rape and sexual abuse. With all of this in mind, it seems current group members must know about the allegations against John and the Students of Light, or against the Heart School of the Greater Reality, as we think they're now called. Despite this, the group continues to operate in a secretive way without publicly addressing these allegations. If you were to wander the streets of the junction today, you'd find a vibrant hub of local businesses and artists. But if you knew what to look for, you'd also find clues to the junction's past as a rundown industrial neighborhood. The once vacant, boarded up storefronts have undergone a transformation in recent years, but they retain marks of their history. The same ramshackle buildings that lined the streets many decades ago still do to this day, though they're now occupied by trendy restaurants and shops that take advantage of the neighborhood's shabby aesthetic. You'd have more difficulty, though, spotting clues to the existence of the secretive group that's called the Junction Home for many years throughout the neighborhood's evolution. Many once visible marks of the group have disappeared, markers like a health food store, a vegetarian restaurant, and a soy foods plant, all of which once stood right in the core of the neighborhood. These symbols of the group's presence have faded into memory. The story of the group who once called themselves the Students of Light remains shrouded in some secrecy, though it's undeniably an important part of the Junction's history. These students have sought balance and enlightenment for nearly five decades in devotion to a leader who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus. And they continue to chase enlightenment in the Junction to this day. Chasing Enlightenment was written and narrated by Daniel Monroe. Audio production and editing by Carolyn Smiley. Additional research and voiceovers by Robert Monroe. Artwork and web design by Megan Hilario. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find more information about the show and ways to support us at ChasingEnlightenment.net. Contact us at ChasingEnlightenment at gmail.com. For mental health support in Canada, visit wellnesstogether.ca or text 686868 for immediate help. Those seeking to leave abusive relationships can visit endingviolencecanada.org.